Hello, welcome to Jane and Jesus, where my guests and I talk about all things Jane Austen, and I talk a little about Jesus. A lot of people don't know that Jane Austen was a serious Christian and that her novels have a lot to teach us not only about the Christian faith, but also general life wisdom too. I'm your host, Karen Swallow Pryor, and on this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Anika Prather, professor of classics at Howard University. We're discussing Jane Bennett. Everyone loves Jane. She's beautiful, gentle, and kind. In other words, she's nothing like me or most of us. But as Dr. Prather shows us, we all can learn a lot from Jane. Here's our conversation. Well, Dr. Prather, let's begin in the beginning. You study and teach the classics, but we live in an age, as you know, that binges on Netflix and amuses itself with TikTok videos and spends billions of hours and dollars on video games. So are the classics just some sort of charming but hopeless anachronism at this point, something that only nerds like us care about? Or can they show us something about our life today and a better future? That question is something I've been really wrestling through because, you know, we've done the research, right? We've read everything and we can see what it's done for us or what it's done in the students we've taught. But I think what really made me want to ask myself this question is a cousin of mine last weekend says, Anika, I read all the stuff you're reading. I get it. But how do we make this relevant to our community? You know, those who may not read them, how do we, what can we say to make them want to read it? And it came to me this week as I was working with some of my students. In in reading classics, we get back to the origins of humanity. We kind of get a better sense of where everything came from, how everything started, why certain things happened. So to be even more clear, one of my Howard University students asked me, Dr. Prather, where did racism come from? Why did they do this to us? And at another time, my son asked me, my son's 11, why did white people invent slavery? But immediately, my understanding of classics gave me an almost instant answer that I'd never really thought to tap into before. I said, oh my goodness, white people didn't invent slavery. Black people enslaved people. Like everybody enslaved people. And I took him back to some ancient stories that he knew from the Bible and from other places and just saying, look, every human civilization has a moment to dominate, has a moment to be in control. And in that domination, we take on the sin of the devil, of pride and the desire to overthrow and conquer someone. And we do that to each other. And so actually sin is the reason there's racism. Sin is the reason why there was oppression and slavery. But I don't think I would have had that understanding and that perspective without reading classics and seeing the rise and fall, right, of civilization. And there is a healing that goes on there that we all need. It kind of frees you from just being angry and pointing the finger at that one group of people. When you begin to see the human story from the beginning and this pattern of ups and downs and conquering and failures. And it's just part of human life that we do this. So that is one of the main reasons we all need to read it. Because I think James Baldwin even says, until I started reading these old texts, I thought my story was just my story and the world kind of revolved around my story. When I began to read these ancient texts, these old texts, I was able to put my story in the context of the overall human story. 
I just love that. I mean, it, it, there's just this tension that we can hold in this way of, of knowing and facing the evil that exists now and lamenting that and yet taking comfort in the fact that, as you said, this is the human condition. This has always been and will always be in some form or another. Our job is to just address it in our moment and to learn how to do that from these old texts. So it's interesting kind of going into my next question because you know and I know that there is a movement today, especially among progressives, to criticize the classics and take them to task. And they point out or want to argue that this is just all, you know, Greek and Roman stuff. And it's really by and for an elite, wealthy, white class of people. Yet here we are, right? I know we're not wealthy because we're professors, right? (laughs) (laughs) We're both women, one of us white, one of us African-American, and yet we love these classic texts. And so why do we embrace them? Do you think, especially maybe even as women, that they do something for us in our time and place more than men? Or do classic texts have different meanings for African-Americans versus white people? I mean, how do we address this question about texts being written within certain dominant cultures, and yet, don't they have something to say to all of us? I have come to believe that classics are magic. You know, when I think of magic, right, you think of something that can shapes shift or some magical fairy that can one minute be the fairy and the next minute a dragon or a butterfly, depending on how the situation calls for it to be or her to be. And I feel like classics functions like that because it's such a conglomerate of all of our human narratives that anyone can come to them if people are brave enough to do so and find something there. But we all may come away with something different or find a different reason or purpose. I know in my history, Black people mostly read them for survival, just as a way to, you know, because we were were taken from Africa, brought to America, had no access to literacy training or anything. And classics were all we had. We were sneaking in the master's library. I've told this story before. We were sneaking in the the master's library. We were stealing books, teaching our own selves to read under the threat of losing limbs or even death. And then these texts were kind of like this code to help us navigate the space. And then after slavery, we continued to read them again to continue to learn the literacy of the land. It was a survival tool. Sadly, I, I look when I look at that story, that reasoning makes me sad because it was hard for us to just enjoy them. We were so busy trying to get ahead, trying to progress, trying to be seen as equal, trying to survive, that we were only using it to survive and to progress as opposed to just you know, enjoying wondering about them. So the purpose of classics for me and, and my, my ancestors has shifted from survival. And then once you start getting into them, an evolution begins to happen. And, and Du Bois kind of talks about that in his famous passage. I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not, you know, and he's dancing in gilded halls with all of these classic authors. And that's where you get a sense that he's finally wondering about them, enjoying them. For me, why do I read them? I read them because I needed, this is really weird, but um, I needed to be healed when it came to race matters. That's what got me to fall in love with them. As I began to see that these stories were also my story, I began to feel a bridge. Now, I don't have any idea why racial healing is important to me. I literally do not know. There's not like some deep reason, except all I can say is I think God has put it in my heart. And bringing racial healing seems very hard, almost impossible. But these texts seem to be a really nice buffer. 
a nice way to say, I don't care how you vote. I don't care what you look like. I don't care even what you believe, how you worship or anything. Let's read this together and see how my story can speak to you and how your story can speak to me and how this story can connect us. And then you just really begin to see this beautiful healing process begin. So that, that has been my reasoning for it. And, and maybe you have a different reason. No, I mean, I think that these great texts are great because they do speak to the common human condition. And, I, you know, as you're talking, I was being reminded of one of my, just one of the greatest little gifts that I've had in my life. And that was, I got to hear the late Maya Angelou speak in a lecture. And one of her famous lines that she gives, I got to hear her deliver when she's talking about growing up and reading books. She says that she thought Shakespeare was a little black girl. Yeah. I mean, that's how much he was able to tap yes. into the human condition that just mirrored her own self so closely that there was a connection there that transcended divisions of race and gender and culture and time. And I just love that. I love that. Oh my gosh. I love that. So, And that's probably why I was so drawn to it because I mean, there were times I'd be praying in my closet, God, can you show me? I don't know why you've given me this desire. Can you show me? And I heard the Spirit of God say to me, use what you have. And what I had was this love of classics and the other works of the canon. That's all I had. But yet I felt lonely because everyone in my community thinks I'm crazy. This little black dreadlock wearing sister loving classics. It just seems all very strange. But when I read them, I didn't feel a color line. I just felt like I'm hearing my story. I can identify with this. Ooh, this text from Aristotle, for some reason, is increasing my faith. Oh my goodness, Socrates is showing me how to teach better and so on. And I, I think that's probably why it has that ability to connect us all. Well, I can relate to that. I didn't grow up or live in the kind of community that you just described, but I was a Southern Baptist and they also thought I was crazy for loving this classic literature. So there are just so many subcultures <laughs> where we are weirdos, right? <laughs> But you and I are both trying to share that love, that gift and that passion that God gave us because I feel like God gave it to me too. And, and yes, I'm evangelizing my that. community. So, well, we're speaking of classics, we're here to talk about Pride and Prejudice. And specifically today, we're talking about Jane Bennett. For anyone who's getting up to speed, Jane is Elizabeth's favorite sister, the eldest in the family. And she's in some ways a foil for Elizabeth. They draw natural comparisons to one another as we're reading the book. And Elizabeth just kind of, you know, she's edgy. She likes to bend, if not break the rules of the courtship culture that uh, determines their world. But Jane is very diligent and she obeys the rules. She observes these codes of their culture silently and dutifully. So if you could have a moment with Jane in real life, is there a classical work that you think Jane could read and benefit from in order to help her be maybe a little bit more resistant to her culture in the way that Elizabeth is? I'm only saying this because this work is at the forefront of my brain lately since last year. I want to say Antigone. <gasps> oh, good choice. Oh, yes. Do elaborate. Love that play. And I know there's like, you know, there's lots of other heroines that we could probably choose from, but Antigone is just in my spirit right now. I feel like there is a grace about Antigone, just like there's this really beautiful elegance about Jane. I just, I do find her beautiful but I like Elizabeth as well. I like Jane because 
even though she sees this favoritism and this constant comparison between the two of them, she still loves her sisters. There's a humility about her that I, I like. And I find that in Antigone. I feel there's a grace about her. It's almost like I feel like Antigone would have minded her business except for this one thing. This is just not right. I've got to say something and do something about this. And I feel like the humility and grace of Jane is a strength that maybe she doesn't recognize and something that could be used to stand up for what is right, you know, what is fair, what is just. But she chooses not to because I think she doesn't see her own strength. Oh, that is such a good description. And I love that you brought up Jane's beauty and just kind of her traditional stature and grace and humility, because she is, in a way, a nod to another classical idea, which is the great importance of traditional aesthetics. She's the most beautiful of the sisters, right? And she's beautiful in exactly the right way for that culture and, and their values. But nowadays, you know, we we have a hard time as moderns talking about beauty as expressing some sort of aesthetic ideal or standard. We don't even necessarily agree that there there is a sort of hierarchy to aesthetics and that not everyone is innately beautiful in the same objective way or desirable in the same way. That's something we have trouble with um, yes. in our sort of small d democratic modern society. So what can we learn as students of classics about aesthetics in general and, and beauty more specifically in character and even in physical appearance? How are we supposed to think about these things that make us so uncomfortable today? It's so funny. I was just talking to my daughter. I have a seven-year-old daughter who is my only girl, the baby, and she is giving me a run for my money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my mom and friends say it's payback, but that's a whole nother for another <laughs> podcast. But um and I was sharing with her that my daughter gets a lot of attention for being so cute or whatever. <laughs> and I just try to keep it real. I'm like, I see some stuff about you that's not cute. So right now you're not cute. <laughs> <laughs> and we made up this rhyme that we say tonight as, as she goes to bed. And I will say, I, I want to be cute on the outside. I want to be cute on the inside because inside is Jesus Christ. Just something to help her remember. Like, I don't really care about how you look on the outside. I need you to be a person of good character. What we can learn from that is you're only as beautiful as you are on the inside. It doesn't really matter how pretty you are when you hurt people, when you say things that are unkind, when you do things that are unkind. I think that's what makes Jane endearing is you don't see her being mean-spirited. Right. Like on the one hand, I'm reading, I'm like, would you speak up? Would you say something? Or, you know, <laughs> that's not right. No, she didn't just compare you to your sister like, you should have said, mom, you know, like, and I'm fussing at Jane for not being more vocal about what's right, just kind of always going along with the flow. But then as I read along, I began to admire that she never is unkind. And maybe she doesn't know, maybe she almost thinks speaking up is unkind. Right. And so she's fear fearful about doing that. How do we balance being a person of grace and beauty, but also a person who stands for what's right and true and just? speaking the truth in love. You know, I think we can look at Jane and model that, but take it a step further and say, now how can I build on who she is for a more complete package? And of course, this is why the classicists united 
the transcendentals of beauty, truth, and goodness. They are different things, but you really can't have beauty apart from goodness and truth. And Jane discovers this in a sense because she almost loses her love because she's too reticent to speak up and to be truthful. Yes. Ooh. I'm sorry. Like, can we just put a quarter? I have a pastor who says, put a quarter in the meter right there. Like, <laughs> all right. Can we just park right there? When I got to that part, I'm just like, say something, you know? Right. But you know what? Can we say, like, in the Christian, I'm so glad this is a Christian podcast because we can be really open. You know, a lot of times in the Christian community, that's almost what made Ruth lose Boaz. I mean, women feel like I can't show right. my truth, my feelings. That's not Christian. That's not godly. That's not being a Proverbs 31 woman. That's not being virtuous. Naomi was like, Ruth, if you don't put on that dress and go lay down at that man's feet, you know, <laughs> let him know you're about to miss your blessing. Uh, and I wanted to tell Jane that because it was very obvious that he loved her and she was still too afraid to pour her heart out to him because of that. Uh, here's a question. Is I know you're supposed to be doing the questions, but it's like, no. <laughs> is that reticence? Is that holding back? Is that pride? That's such a good question. I think it can be. I, I think in Jane's case, I'm not sure that it is. I mean, if it's humility, sometimes humility can actually be a kind of the flip side of pride, right? Yes, yes. I mean, going back to the biblical example of Ruth and Naomi, I think it's clear that we have biblical models for both men and women being truthful and forthright. And I think the the kind of modeling we get in some of the characters in Austen and then in later Victorian literature especially is we get a model that's really more Victorian than biblical. And that's yes. what we have today in our culture, which, yeah, I could say a lot about that. But <laughs> we often mistake Victorianism for biblical truth or biblical values. They are not the same. You, ooh, that's a word. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, just kind of making our way to one final question. Of course, Pride and Prejudice has such ongoing longevity. It's popular as a novel, popular in films, fan clubs, all of those things. So let's talk a little bit about the literary canon, because Austen was not always part of the canon. She really didn't become popular until after her death. And, and we're in the midst of these sort of canon wars yeah. <laughs> um, that have been ongoing. Where do you think Austen fits in the canon of great texts, like, say, compared to Virgil? Related to that, and this is a big question, so you can just kind of take your pick on where you want to go, but how do we establish this kind of standard or criteria for this kind of artistic immortality or greatness within the canon? To answer that question, I want to tell you about my journey into Austen and Pride and Prejudice. I struggled with her at first because I could, at first, I could not see myself in the text. And then there was this point when Mrs. Bennett is just frantically trying to explain why her she wants to see her daughters married. And I really felt her urgency. At one point, I think she explains, you know, your father's getting older. Uh, you may think, you know, you're living comfortably, but he's basically, he's the one reason we are living comfortably. He's working this farm. He's working this space. But if something happens to him, I have there's nothing left for you. She even says that there'll be not much left. And so she wanted to, while they were alive and well, she wanted to make sure her daughters were well taken care of, no matter what happens to them. For some reason, that whole 
breakdown when she said that reminded me of my mother. I was in my 30s before I met my husband and my mother was just so worried I was never going to get married. It didn't seem I would have much hope of ever being married. And she was very frantic about it, very similar to Mrs. Bennett. And in that moment, I was drawn into the text. And in fact, I began to see that an African-American text, such as Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, the grandmothers being frantic about marrying off ah, Janie, <laughs> Jane and Janie. And when, when the grandmother finds Janie kissing another little boy, she marries her off to this really decent man because she's afraid that, you know, I'm getting older. I don't want you to just become this woman who's sleeping around with men and I want to know that you'll be cared for. Where I'm going with this is that this story of mothers wanting to see their daughters well cared for, not just marriage for romantic reasons, but I don't want to die before I know you're going to be safe, before you're going to be cared for, right? So one of the characteristics, if I'm going based on Mortimer Adler's creation of the canon, he has several characteristics to be included in the canon. But one of them is that whatever's in that text transcends the content, the theme transcends culture, race. It's like universal, right? It's a universal theme. And I just saw a universal theme there. In that moment, Miss Bennett is talking about wanting to see her daughters get married. Even the point, um, I can't remember which sister it was, the name, but the one who ran off with Mr. Wickham. Lydia. Lydia, right? And she just has, almost has a heart attack. She's laid out just, oh, I can't believe, you know, because she doesn't think they're married. My point with that is how mothers worry about their daughters. Like that's not a new theme and that's not a white theme or a black theme. I know black mothers, I mean, and white mothers, go through this too, but Black mothers constantly live in fear of losing their children. Now, I think other mothers may feel that, but we actually fear someone taking our children. It's a, it's a constant, almost paranoia that we have. But I think that's rooted again in the common theme of a mother's love for their children and the desire to see them well cared for. So that alone makes Jane Austen's text eligible to be in the canon. If I were to say, and I love Black literature, but if I were to you know, pick a book that's just talking about living in the hood of Chicago or living in, you know, in the heart of D.C., and that, that's my experience. There may not be some universal themes in that. Not to say I don't love that literature or it doesn't have a place. It does, because it helps us understand each other to read each other's narratives. But there are some books that are not someone else's narrative. There are some books that are all of humanity's narrative, right? Whether the characters look like you or not, sometimes we will judge a book just because the characters don't look like us, which is what I was doing when I first started reading her. And I'm going to just be honest about that. But then as I got into the book, I was like, wait, this is my, she's telling my story. This is the story of my mom. Like, I just feel like God wants you to join eHarmony, you know? And I'm like, no, he, I didn't hear God say that. Yes, he did. And, I, and she made me join and I met my husband there. But she was frantic. I remember her urgency. That love of a mother over their child is something that we all can relate to. So that alone, I think, makes it eligible for the canon. Absolutely. I agree. And I said that was the last question, but I just want to squeeze one more in if we can. Is there anything from Pride and Prejudice about Jane specifically or just anything about the novel that you think is an illumination of something that Jesus teaches us? a parable or maybe one of the Beatitudes or just something from his life that shows us something about Jane and Jesus? A common theme or thread that I see in the story, 
when Mr. Bingley leaves, right? And, and she thinks she's lost that yes. love. There was an assumption she made at first. Like, he doesn't love me. He didn't desire me. She did not know the man was struggling <laughs> while he was away from her. Like, he was yearning for her. There were misconceptions people made about Mr. Darcy, you know? Right. So you see that people making judgments at first. And misjudgments and misunderstandings. And misjudgments, right? So when, I, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking of the scripture that says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. One thing I can learn from it is to be slower to judge. Even if a person looks like they're mad on the outside or mm. unkind or not a, love, a person worthy of love and grace on the outside, there's something in the heart of the person that maybe we don't, we don't understand. And there were some things Jane did not understand about the turmoil that Mr. Bingley was going through as he was making this decision. There were some class issues. There were just some things he had to wrestle through to finally break down and make his choice. And she misunderstood what that struggle was all about for him. And that as believers in Jesus Christ, who loved us, who sat with the tax collectors and sinners, who talked to the woman at the well, who even let Judas be his disciple. He was always very gracious, always very open to welcome all people into his space, to give every person, as Nicodemus was sneaking to him to talk to him at night, even though he was a Pharisee, God created a safe space for him to do that. Jesus created a safe space for him to do that because he was looking at his heart. And if Jane maybe had looked at his heart, Maybe she would have gotten love a little sooner and not in such a, a near disastrous way. And so that's the lesson. That's the lesson I learned from that. One of so many that Jane Austen offers us. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation, wonderful, enlightening, and I'm so glad that you joined us. I'm so glad you invited me. Thank you so much. Dr. Prather says classic books are like magic. I just love that, don't you? Imagine when Africans were brought to America as slaves, they risked their very lives just to be able to read a book. Imagine being willing to risk so much in knowing that reading is that powerful, that magical. And yet today, those of us who can read, which is by far most of us, too often don't read. And in not reading, we are missing out on the knowledge, the understanding, and the healing that great books offer us. Perhaps the greatest magic great books like Pride and Prejudice offer us is that we begin reading them in order to see ourselves in the text. We can't. But by seeing other people first, we can find a bit of ourselves after all. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. Please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family.